And something of philosophy or something about St. Thomas from our students or from our junior colleagues. And that's an occupational hazard for all merely human teachers. What's stranger and more wonderful is that our digital age has made it possible for us to learn from our juniors even about our own teachers, though they were too young to learn from them in person. I'd like to tell you about an instance of that. Uh, one of the greatest minds in the Laval tradition to which uh, a number of us here belong was Duane Burquist, a man I was blessed to know practically from my birth to his death in 2019. Like many others before and after me, I learned from Duane in courses he offered for free in his home. In those classes, we read the entirety of St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's De Anima, met once a week, and took three years to do it. I also attended conferences with him and corresponded with him, so I feel the responsibility now to hand on what I've received from him to others and to let them know it comes from him, and also to give them a sense of what a character he was and what an excellent man. My youngest child, Ben, got to know Duane only in a very limited way, or rather made himself known to Duane when he was three years old. One day at a gathering at the Berquist house, I was called downstairs to see some damage that had been done to a lovely coffee table the Berquists had just purchased. It appeared that someone had badly gouged the surface in about five places in some clumsy, misguided attempt at distressing the piece. When I saw the damage, I asked the children there if they knew who had done it, and they all pointed at Ben. At the time, he was still in diapers, not yet talking fluidly, though he was able to understand speech and fumble out a few words. So I gestured to the marks on the table and asked him, how did these marks get here? His face lit up with a gleeful smile as he pointed to a fire poker on the floor not far off and said, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> so Ben never, never really got to know Duane himself, except in that sort of way. Uh, at present, however, Ben is pursuing a degree in philosophy at Baylor University and he's become very interested in Duane Berquist. So I passed on to him all my notes and files that have to do with Duane, and these include a series of audio recordings of courses he taught to certain monks at a Maronite monastery in Petersham, Mass., not far from TAC's New England campus. I've visited and given some instruction to these same monks, who are now eager to learn from students of Duane, uh, since they can no longer have Duane himself, the monks tell me he taught them weekly for over 20 years, again entirely for free. From these audio recordings, anyone can get a clear sense of what Duane was like as a teacher. One can also hear some of the anecdotes he would tell in order to illustrate various points. Some weeks back over the phone, Ben told me about one of these I'd never heard before, so I'm learning from my son about my old teacher. I still haven't heard the, the recording myself, but I can pass it on to you as I heard it from him. So Duane was explaining to the monks that the dependence of things on their material is more known to us than their dependence on an agent or maker. One way he liked to illustrate that was by saying that it's more known who the mother of a child is than who the father is. As all of you here know, the very word matter is related to the word mother. A material is that out of which something is born, so to speak. Of course, like the father, the mother is also an agent, an active producer of her child, but unlike the father, she also supplies the child with nourishment with the materials for growth and development throughout its life in the womb. This longer association of the mother with the child's coming into the world, together with the fact that the child is born from her and not from the father, makes her a more conspicuous cause of the child than the father is. Duane liked to point out that this fact of nature is a source of jokes in literature. When disguised Athena asks Telemachus whether he's the son of Odysseus, for example, Telemachus replies, 
so my mother tells me. Now, I'd heard all that sort of thing before from Duane himself, but Ben went on to tell me the following unfamiliar story that Duane had told the monks. Duane had three children of his own, Paul, the oldest, then Maria, then Marcus. Now, one day, when Duane's oldest son, Paul, was still young enough to be unfamiliar with the facts of life, he approached his father and asked him, Daddy, did I come from Mommy? Yes, Paul, Duane replied. You came from Mommy. Young Paul thought for a moment and then inquired further. Did Maria come from Mommy? Yes, said Duane. Maria came from Mommy. Paul asked again, What about Marcus? Did he come from Mommy? Yes, yes he did, Paul. Marcus came from Mommy. Paul thought a little bit more and asked, Did you come from Mommy? <laughs> no, answered Duane. I did not come from Mommy. Paul thought again and said, You don't really belong here, do you? <laughs> So, if you don't happen to be familiar with Duane yourself, there you have a sample of his warmth and charm. He was also very generous, very gentle, and very wise. I hope I've received enough from him and from my other teachers, and of course from St. Thomas, that a little of their wisdom will have made its way into the talk that I'm about to give. And with that, I will now begin, and the talk is not as thick as it looks. This is mostly blank paper. Um, so vast is the soul, said Heraclitus, that one could explore it in all directions and never come to the end of it. That's true not only of soul in general, but also of the human soul in particular, and even of the still more particular investigation into its immortality. One can spend a lifetime learning about it. St. Thomas infers its immortality, however, from its subsistence, since that is prior to the human soul's natural capacity, incapacity to cease existing. The question whether the human soul subsists, therefore, is of profound philosophical importance. Understanding its subsistence is necessary also for understanding what the human soul is. If we don't understand a thing's natural mode of existence, then we don't understand its nature, since its existence is the actuality of its essence. If we don't know whether heat or light exists in the mode of a substance or an accident, for example, we don't yet know what heat or light is. Even after learning that souls in general are the substantial forms of corporeal living things, we do not yet fully understand what the human soul is. By that general definition of soul, we do know that the human soul doesn't exist in the mode of an accident. We do not yet see that it also doesn't exist in the same mode as any other soul or substantial form. Other souls in substantial forms St. Thomas calls material forms, forms of matter that do not have their own existence, but are only that by which some material being has existence. Not having any existence of their own, such souls cannot exist apart from the material beings they constitute. And so St. Thomas says they are immersed in matter, and that they do not subsist through themselves. By contrast, the human soul does have its own existence, and is not merely that by which something else, namely a, a complete human being, exists. To express this, St. Thomas says that the human soul is subsistent and that it is a hoc aliquid. It has an existence that it can share with matter, so as to constitute a complete human being, but which it need not share with matter. One could say this means that the human soul alone, of all souls, is not just a soul, but is also a spirit, just as it alone, of all the spirits, is also a soul. Answering the question whether the soul is subsistent is thus necessary in order to understand what it is. 
For that reason, St. Thomas, in his discussion of the soul in the Prima Pars, shows first that it's the actuality of the body, and then, right away, he shows that it's subsistent. And in his disputed question on the soul, he asks first whether the soul is a hoc aliquid, which he answers by showing it's subsistent. Aristotle, too, says that we must come to understand what the soul is through its accidents, that is, through its powers, acts, and undergoings. And the foremost question about these is whether any of them belong to the soul alone, or do they all belong also to the body? And he ends up affirming that the soul's act and power of understanding is the soul's alone, so that the soul has an existence of its own as well. He says, in other words, that the human soul is subsistent. And he arrives at that conclusion by an argument that St. Thomas adopts after him. The thesis I'll advance in this talk is that St. Thomas's proof of the, of the subsistence of the human soul is a demonstration. To make that as clear as possible in a brief talk, I'll first present his argument, then offer a sample of its power to withstand objections, and finally describe the argument's demonstrative nature. First, here's the argument itself, as he formulates it in his Prima Pars. It is necessary to say that that which is the principle of intellective operation, which we call the soul of man, is an incorporeal and subsisting principle. For it's clear that through intellect, man is able to know the natures of all bodies. Now it's necessary for what is able to know certain things to have none of them in its nature, because whatever would be in it naturally would prevent knowledge of the others. We see, for example, that a sick person's tongue, saturated with a choleric and bitter humor, cannot perceive something sweet, since instead all things seem bitter to it. So if the intellective principle had within itself the nature of a body, it would not be able to know all bodies, for every body has a determinate nature. Therefore, it's impossible for the intellective principle to be a body. And similarly, it's impossible for it to understand through a bodily organ because the determinate nature of that bodily organ, too, would prevent the knowledge of other bodies, just as a liquid poured into a glass vase would appear to be of the same determinate color, not only as one existing in the pupil, but also as one that is in the glass. Therefore, the intellective principle, which is called the mind or the intellect, has an operation by itself, which it does not share with the body. Now, nothing is able to operate by itself unless it subsists by itself since operating belongs only to something actually existing, hence something operates in the mode in which it exists. For this reason, we do not say that heat, but a hot thing heats. It remains, then, that the human soul, which is called an intellect or a mind, is something incorporeal and subsisting. Okay, that's the argument. That was all St. Thomas. The main argument here is simply this first figure syllogism. This is one way of casting it. Major. What has an operation of its own has an existence of its own, that is, it subsists. Minor, the human soul has an operation of its own, namely, understanding. Conclusion, the human soul has an existence of its own, that is, it subsists. Both the major and the minor are supported. The major is just a particular case of a universal principle, namely that only what has actual existence can act or operate. Because that is so, a thing operates in the mode in which it has actual existence. In particular, only what has an existence of its own can also have an operation of its own. So much for the major. Much more difficult to grasp, and far more controversial, is the minor premise. The human soul has an operation all its own, not shared with the body, namely understanding. 
St. Thomas proves this by an argument due originally to Aristotle. This crucial supporting argument can be presented as a single syllogism reasoning modus tollens as follows. If the human intellect were either a part of the body or a power existing in and operating by means of one, say a portion of the brain, then it would naturally possess its own corporeal nature, would consequently always be knowing that one determinate nature, and would thus be unable to know all other corporeal natures. But the human intellect is not always thinking about some one determinate corporeal nature and is able to know all corporeal natures. Therefore, the human intellect is not a part of the body, nor does it reside in and operate by means of a part of the body. Though this argument is not itself St. Thomas's proof for the human soul's subsistence, but only the supporting argument for that proof's minor premise, it's the true heart of his proof, and so I'm going to focus on it. All or most of us here are quite familiar with this argument, but familiarity and complete understanding are not the same, and in my own philosophical development, I'm still somewhere between mere familiarity with this argument and perfect understanding of it. Perfect understanding of this sort of argument requires the ability to formulate and resolve all the powerful counter-arguments that can be brought against its premises, or against its way of reasoning, or against its conclusion. Many counter-arguments can be made against any of St. Thomas's demonstrations that the human intellect is incorporeal, but that's especially true of this one from Aristotle. The would-be refutations of it number over a dozen. In the interests of time, I will discuss just one. In the interest of making a small contribution to the understanding of the argument, the one would-be refutation of it that I will discuss is one that's not easily answered, one that's nowhere considered by St. Thomas himself, one often made by his critics today, yet seldom answered by his living disciples, with the exception of Sanjay Adhikari. <laughs> the counter-argument I have in mind says that St. Thomas's if-then premise appears to be false. The premise, recall, states that if the human intellect were corporeal, then it would be stuck knowing that one corporeal nature all the time, which would interfere with its knowing other corporeal natures. However, says this would-be refuter, it does not follow from the supposition that the mind physically possesses a corporeal nature that it must know that nature. It's not a general rule that a cognitive organ knows its own physical properties, not even when they are its objects. The visual cortex within the brain, for example, physically possesses certain colors which are its objects, but does not see these colors that physically belong to it. Nor does the part of the brain responsible for touch feel its own pressures and temperatures, though these are physically present within it. It's not physical possession of an object that causes a cognitive power to know it then, but instead another sort of possession of the object, namely by way of a cognitive representation, by having a sensible or intelligible species of the object. It is strange that St. Thomas has forgotten this, continues the objector, since he himself often insists that all knowledge is through a likeness or through an assimilation, that is, through the likeness or species of the object existing in the knower, not through the object existing in its own natural existence. Hence he says, in agreement with Aristotle, that stone does not exist in the, in the soul that understands what a stone is, but the species of stone exists there. That is, not stone itself, but some likeness or representation of stone exists in the mind that understands it. We can now appreciate the force of this objection. St. Thomas says that if the human intellect had a corporeal nature, then just by that fact it would know that nature. 
but knowledge of its own corporeal nature would follow only if that nature is assumed to exist in the intellect with a representational and intelligible existence, not if it's assumed to exist there with a natural, physical one. If we assume the intellect is a corporeal power, but not that it's always in possession of an idea of itself, then it does not follow that it always knows itself, or that consequently it cannot know other things. In this way, the argument seems to be fatally flawed. To my knowledge, St. Thomas nowhere raises this objection to his argument. He nonetheless supplies us with all that we need to answer it, as I hope now to show. The objector relies on the idea that all knowledge proceeds from a representation that is really distinct from the form of the object in its own natural existence, and even claims that St. Thomas agrees with this. But he does not agree. He does sometimes say that all knowledge is through the likeness of the known in the knower, or through assimilation. But when he does so, he means to include cases in which the form through which the knower knows is just the form of the object in its own natural existence as happens in divine and angelic self-knowledge, and in any creature's vision of the divine essence. In such cases, the form within the knower is like the form of the known in the understated sense in which a thing is like itself. Other times, however, St. Thomas uses distinct expressions for talking about these two cases, saying that some knowledge is persimilitudinem, that is, through a likeness really distinct from the form of the object in its own natural existence whereas other knowledge is parasensiam, that is, through the form of the object in its own existence. St. Thomas gives two signs or indications that knowledge must sometimes be parasimilitudinem, and also gives the reason why it's necessary when it is necessary. The first sign that knowledge must at least sometimes be parasimilitudinem is that otherwise natural similarity would always suffice for knowledge, and then there would be no reason why one stone would not know another, or why fire would not know fire. Another sign is that if natural similarity were the sufficient and universal cause of knowledge, then the sense of sight would know hearing instead of color, since its nature is more like hearing than like the nature of color. And similarly, the senses would know bodies better than the intellect does, because the senses are corporeal, like bodies, and the intellect is less like them. And all these things are false. Hence, knowledge must often take place through a likeness of the object's form rather than through such a form in its own natural existence. And St. Thomas also explains why this is so. The reason is that knowers are meant to know things other than themselves, since it's the proper perfection of knowers to be capable of having the forms of other things. Obviously, the forms of things other than the knower cannot exist in the knower with their own natural existence, Stones and cats and dogs can't exist in the, in the human soul with their natural existence, for example. I'm going to make a, an exception in a way for the uh, uh, case of the beatific vision, but we could talk about that later. Hence, knowledge through a likeness rather than through the form of the object in its natural existence is required in such cases. But this is not a reason why all knowledge whatsoever must be parasimilitudinem. Rather, it applies only to cases in which a knower knows primary and immediate objects that are other than the knower himself. Hence, it does not show that a hypothetically corporeal human intellect must know itself parasimilitudinem, since that's a case of self-knowledge, not knowledge of another thing with another nature that has to be fitted to the knower. So in sum, the would-be refutation falsely assumes that knowledge in all cases follows upon possession of the object's form not in its natural existence. 
And the reason St. Thomas himself supplies for knowledge needing to be parasimilitude in them applies only to knowers knowing things other than themselves, hence cannot apply to a hypothetically corporeal intellect knowing itself. Thus does the refutation fail to overturn St. Thomas's if-then premise. On the other hand, the failure of an attempt to show St. Thomas's if-then premise is false does not imply that it's true, and even if the would-be refutation has failed to prove it's false, it has drawn attention to the fact that it's a strange if-then statement, one whose truth is not immediately clear. Why then must we admit that on the, the hypothesis that the human intellect is the brain or some portion thereof, it follows that it knows its own nature all the time? The answer comes from St. Thomas's very argument, which posits that the primary object of the human intellect is the nature of all bodies. Given that the human intellect is itself the nature of a body, such as the brain, it follows that it's one of its own primary objects. Consequently, it will know itself, since all that's required for knowledge is for a cognitive power to fully possess the form of one of its primary and immediate objects. Two questions arise here. First, how can we be sure that knowledge requires nothing more than the existence of the object in the cognitive power? Might not some special mode of existence also be required? Second, if there's nothing more required, then why doesn't the part of the brain responsible for the sense of touch always feel its own tangible qualities? And why doesn't the visual cortex always see its own visible qualities? Consider the first question first. Why is it enough for the object to exist somehow in the corresponding cognitive power? Why don't we have to add, with the appropriate mode of existence capable of causing knowledge? The answer is that the entire reason why a special mode of existence of the object's form other than its own natural existence is sometimes required for knowledge is that the object is other than the cognitive power and so it cannot exist in that power with its own natural existence. Again, there's an exception to this, but let's not worry about that just yet. It must exist there instead through a representation whose natural existence complies with the exigencies of such a cognitive power. For example, if the cognitive power is sight, which must exist in eyes and brain and not in stone, then there's no way to get the form of stone into sight with its own natural existence. Instead, it must exist there as a visual representation which can have its natural existence in eyes and brain. The primary and universal requirement for knowledge is for the object to exist in the cognitive power. But whatever exists in something must exist in it through the mode or capacity of the thing that it's in. Therefore, this secondary and particular requirement for knowledge must follow. Whenever the object cannot exist in the cognitive power with its own natural existence, then knowledge will require it to exist there with some other sort of existence compatible with being in that power. But not otherwise. If a primary and immediate object exists in a cognitive power with its own natural existence, that short circuits any need for it to exist there in some other mode in order for knowledge to follow. Hence, St. Thomas holds that knowledge does, in some cases, follow on the natural existence of the thing known within the knower. When asking whether an angel sees the divine essence through a created likeness of that essence existing in the angelic mind, St. Thomas entertains the objection that all knowledge is by assimilation, hence by means of some likeness of the known existing in the knower. He answers it in this way. Knowledge does not require assimilation, except in order for the knower to be in some way united with the thing known. And a union by which the thing itself, through its very essence, is united to an intellect, is greater than if it were united by its likeness. And so, since the divine essence is united to the intellect of an angel as its form, 
It's not required in order for the angelic intellect to know that essence, for it to be informed by a likeness of it, so that by means of this likeness coming in between, it would know it. Hence, a hypothetically corporeal human intellect, this is me again, would not need to be informed with a representation of itself, so that by means of this intermediate likeness, it could know itself. Instead, its form and nature in its own natural existence would already exist in it, and that would cause it to know itself. So much for the first question. Consider now the second. Does St. Thomas's if-then premise oblige us to say that the sense of sight or imagination must always see certain colors, since the part of the brain housing such powers naturally possesses certain colors? Not at all. The natural existence of colors, or temperatures and so on, in the brain does not unite them with the cognitive powers in the brain. Though their organs have natural colors, neither sight nor imagination itself consists in being a certain color, by contrast, the intellect itself would consist in being a certain corporeal nature if it were a power of the brain. If analogously the power of sight itself were the color pink, for instance, then indeed the sense of sight would always see pink. So too, if the intellect were a certain corporeal nature, then it would always understand itself. Also, and I don't think St. Thomas was quite aware of this, it's not the entire organ of an external sense that's receptive to its object in its natural existence or to its medium. He understood this to some extent, but it's not the whole organ that's receptive, and that's the part that's got to lack the object. Instead, one part of the sense organ is dedicated to being thus receptive to the object, while another part is more active, working up the received information into a complete sensory representation of the object. Tactile sensation of what the hand is touching, for instance, is completed in the brain, not in the hand, but what's thus felt is in the hand, not in the brain. The touch centers within the brain have no way of receiving tactile information immediately from the tangible qualities materially existing in the brain itself. So the receptive part of the organ is not there, it's elsewhere. Likewise, the seeing of an object whose form enters through the eyes via light takes place in the brain, not in the eyes or even in the optic nerves, but what's thus seen is the external object received through the eyes there, not something in the brain. And it's only the receptive part of the organ of external sense that would affect sensation by physically possessing its own object. For example, it's not all parts of the complete organ of sight, but only certain parts of the eye that are receptive to light in its natural being. And so only in those parts must it lack color, in the cornea, aqueous humor, lens, and vitreous humor. If the eye physically possessed a lit color in one of these places, it would always be seeing that color. As things are, it's possible for a body to lack all colors, to be perfectly or nearly transparent, and so the organ of sight takes advantage of that, putting only transparent materials between the retina and the incoming light from the object so that we do not find ourselves always seeing one set of colors naturally existing in our own eyes. Touch is a different and complicated case, and I'll just say a little bit about it, since it's impossible for a body to lack all tangible qualities, such as temperatures and pressures. Consequently, touch has no choice but to allow the temperature of its own medium, human tissue, to become a component in all of its temperature sensations of outside objects. And that, of course, fits with experience. Which of two bowls of water feels warmer to our, uh, to our two hands, for example, is determined in part by the temperatures of the water in the bowls, but also by the temperatures of our hands. So in that case, you do get something like the strange result that the hands are kind of, your, your body's always feeling its own temperature in some sense, mixed up with the temperatures of, of other things. Uh, and that also makes it less cognitive than sight. 
Like tangible qualities, corporeal natures can't be entirely absent from a corporeal organ. Hence, if the intellect were some part of the brain, every part of it would have a determinate bodily organ, uh, or excuse me, determinate bodily nature, including the part that was supposedly receptive. Then the intellect itself, being already being one of its proper and primary objects, would bypass the need for any intelligible representation through which to make its own corporeal nature present to itself. Therefore, the intellect would always be in full possession of one of its own primary and proper objects and consequently would know itself, just as St. Thomas says. Its own specific nature would enter into every one of its thoughts. But that's contrary to experience. We can think of corporeal natures entirely other than that of the human brain apart from any relation they have to it. As promised, that counter-argument is the only one I will discuss. I now move on to a consideration of the logical nature of St. Thomas's argument for the subsistence of the human soul. It's a demonstration, since one premise, namely, what has its own operation has its own existence, follows immediately from things that are self-evident, and the other, namely, the soul has its own operation, is itself demonstrated. More specifically, the argument is demonstration quia, demonstration that its conclusion is true. It's not telling us why the human soul subsists, that it has its own operation does not cause it to subsist, rather that it subsists is why it has its own operation. It's in this way similar to the argument for God's existence from motion. The whole argument is a demonstration, but quia, it's not showing us why God exists, but that he exists, reasoning from motion, whose existence is evident to us, to the ultimate reason why motion exists. Still, that argument is based on the crucial premise that motion needs a mover, which can be demonstrated propter quid. What about St. Thomas's supporting argument for his crucial premise that the human intellect is not a part of the body? Is that a demonstration? And is a demonstration quia or propter quid? We'll be able to tell more easily whether this argument is a demonstration if we reformulate it as a categorical syllogism as follows. Major. A power of receiving and knowing all corporeal natures must lack corporeal nature. Minor, the human intellect is a power of receiving and knowing all corporeal natures. Therefore, the human intellect must lack corporeal nature. The major premise is self-evident or borders on something self-evident. What's to receive and thereby know all things of certain determinate natures must lack them all, since a thing cannot already have what, it's to, what it is to receive, nor can it naturally possess one of the things in a whole genus of things it's to receive and lack only the, other, uh, only the other ones if the one thing would prevent it from receiving all of the others. And this is the case with corporeal natures. Having one corporeal nature does not permit receiving others. Being a cat prevents something from receiving the nature of a dog. And knowing one corporeal nature through an intelligible species dedicated to it does not permit knowing other natures not represented through that species. The minor premise, too, is self-evident. Hence, St. Thomas says it's clear that man, through intellect, can know the natures of all bodies. By definition, the human intellect is a power of receiving and knowing all corporeal natures. And it's a matter of experience that we're in possession of such a power. It's a matter of experience that the human mind can grasp all bodies in general, say by forming a definition of body that applies to them all, and also by making true statements about them all, as we see it does both in the case of nat all natural bodies, as in physics, and also in the case of all mathematical bodies, as in geometry. It's also a matter of experience 
that the human mind can grasp all bodies in their common principles, since it can understand the chemical elements or ultimate particles that compose them all. It's also a matter of experience that the human mind can grasp all bodies in their specific natures, at least to some extent, since these become knowable to it through experience of individuals from which it learns both their common genus and the differences that divide it, and also their common materials and the special compositions that distinguish them. St. Thomas's argument for the premise that the human soul has its own operation, then, is indeed a demonstration of some sort. But is it demonstration quia or propter quid? Comparison with a similar argument about an easier matter may help to decide. Consider this argument about the aqueous humor of the human eye. A medium receptive to all colors must lack color. The aqueous humor is a medium receptive to all colors. Therefore, the aqueous humor must lack color. Here the middle term is receptive to all colors, but is that an effect or a cause of the fact that the aqueous humor lacks color? Well, if we refer to material causation, it's an effect. The humor is receptive of all colors because it lacks them all. On this understanding, because means due to the following disposition in the humor rendering it apt to receive. In a similar sense, a movie screen is receptive of projected images because it has no image on itself that would interfere with those images. Similarly, prime matter is receptive of all forms because it lacks them all in its own nature. Of course, prime matter receives materially, whereas the aqueous humor does not, when we're talking about light and color. Still, the dispositions required for its special kind of receptivity are more like material uh, causes of its receptivity than they are like any other of the three genera of causes. Understood analogously, the argument for the intellect's incorporeal nature is effect to cause reasoning, hence demonstration quia, because the intellect lacks, or sorry, because the intellect lacks all corporeal natures, it's tied to none, and is capable of understanding them all. The conclusion gives the quasi-material cause of the truth of the minor premise that the intellect can understand all things. It's a dis dispository cause, right? Receptive kind of cause, but not matter in the strict sense, of course. But what if we refer instead to final causation and ask again whether being receptive to all colors is an effect or a cause of the fact that the aqueous humor lacks color? In this way, it's a cause. The aqueous humor lacks all colors because it receives them all. Here, because means due to its being for the sake of the following end. In a similar sense, a movie screen has no image on itself because it's meant to receive projected images and prime matter lacks all forms because it's to receive them all. Understood analogously, the argument for the intellect's incorporeal nature is cause to affect reasoning, hence demonstration propter quid. Now, which way of taking the argument is correct? Well, they're both correct. It would be a mistake only to think that the mind's receptivity to all corporeal natures is both a cause and an effect of its incorporeality in the same genus of causation. In which way did St. Thomas intend his argument to be taken? The language of the argument itself seems indeterminate, open to either way of being understood, but St. Thomas quite clearly holds that the acts and objects to which powers are ordered are their final causes. Here's what he says. Powers of the soul are differentiated by their acts and objects. Now some say that this should not be understood in the sense that, that the diversity of acts and objects is the cause of the diversity of powers, but only in the sense that it's a sign of it. Others say that the diversity of objects is the cause of the diversity of powers in the case of passive powers, but not in the case of active ones. 
However, if one considers the matter carefully, one finds that in the case of both kinds of powers, their acts and their objects are not only signs of their diversity, but are in some way the causes of it. For everything whose existence is only on account of some end has a mode determined for it from the end to which it's ordered. A saw, for example, both in its material and in its form, is of such a sort as to be suitable for its end, which is to cut. And every power of the soul, whether active or passive, is ordered to its act as to an end, as is plain from Metaphysics 9. Hence, each and every power has a determined mode and species as a consequence of which it can be suitable for such and such an act. Accordingly, as the eye's transparency is for the sake of receiving and seeing all colors, so is the intellect's incorporeality for the sake of receiving and understanding all corporeal natures. The intellect must not be composed of corporeal principles or combined with any of them, in order that it may know them all. The argument reasons necessarily, and does so from necessary truths that contain the proper cause of the truth of the conclusion. It is, then, a philosophical demonstration in the fullest sense. And yet, it also seems to be somehow first for us. The argument is prior to other demonstrations for the incorporeality of the human intellect. One sign of this is that Aristotle gives no other demonstration of the human intellect's incorporeal nature, and none existed or not fully fledged prior to him. Another sign of its primary character is that St. Thomas prefers it when addressing beginners in sacred theology. In his Summa Contra Gentiles, which is not for beginners, he offers many other arguments for the incorporeality and immateriality of intellect. In the Summa Theologiae, he offers only one argument for the incorporeality of intellect on the way to proving the human soul's subsistence, namely the one from Aristotle. Probably the reason it's somehow first for us is that it argues from things that the soul has in common with the senses and even with matter, namely receptivity to corporeal things. Though the intellect does not receive form in the same way or even in the same sense as matter does, or as the senses do, it does receive form and in that way, it's like, the, it's like sense. The argument begins with what the intellect has most in common with the senses, and in that way begins with what is most known to us about the intellect. Like the senses, and most especially like sight, the intellect must lack its primary objects in its own constitution. Unlike sight, intellect has all corporeal natures as its primary objects. From these facts, it follows that unlike the senses, the human intellect has no corporeal organ. It's most natural for reason to proceed from the sensible to the intelligible. And here we have a particularly striking example of this, since Aristotle's argument proceeds, as it were, from the intellect's likeness to the senses, to its distinction and difference from them. St. Thomas and Aristotle are certainly admirable for their brilliant discovery and articulation of this argument for the human soul's subsistence. But more than them, we should admire the, the human mind itself since this way it has of coming to know itself is no human innovation. The fact that such a path lies open to us at all is not due to anyone's philosophical genius or imagination. No, it's inscribed in the very nature of the human intellect. Its true origin, therefore, is no philosopher or any other human being, but is human nature's author himself. We should be moved with joy and gratitude at the thought. How wonderful, how provident, that something as desirable to know as the subsistence of the human soul and the incorporeality of the human mind can be known by so decisive and perfect an instrument as a demonstration propter quid. How deplorable, then, that the argument is so rarely considered, 
and is received by too many of the few philosophers who do consider it as something much less than it really is, as a probable argument, or worse, as a piece of sophistry or pre-scientific medieval bungling. In truth, it's one of the greatest common goods of reason. But access to that good must diminish considerably as long as published criticisms of it are left unanswered. So let those who see it for what it is profit from it themselves, but let them also, in their spare moments, remove whatever obstacles to it they can that lie in the way for others. Thank you.